Section 2 of The Black Cat, Volume 2, Number 4, January 1897. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Black Cat, Volume 2, Number 4, January 1897. Section 2. The Scoop of the Scarlet Tanager by Edward B. Clark When Tom Prentice opened his eyes for the first time in a little Westchester County farmhouse, the early morning breeze had filled the room with the scent of the lilac bloom, and a hermit thrush was singing its glory, glory song from a bush beyond the well. When, in later years, the boy's liking for birds and flowers manifested itself. An old woman who was in at the birth remembered these things and traced the effect to the cause. They baptized him Thomas, but to nobody was he ever known as anything else than Tom. He lived a farmer boy's life, but found time for more reading than most. Tom's father, who was an improvident creature, lost his farm, and died. His mother went while the thrush was singing. At twenty-one, Tom was penniless and in love with Ruth Bailey, who was kind enough also to love Tom. He knew of a little place called Strawberry Lodge, with a bit of a house on it not much bigger than one of the bird boxes with which he had filled the trees about his father's place. At Strawberry Lodge, he knew he could raise enough fancy fruits for the markets to make a living for Ruth and himself. It would take two thousand dollars to buy the place, and Tom hadn't a cent. He had, however, that ever-present confidence of the countryman that he could do something in New York. So one night he told Ruth, what many another thought no prettier girl had been told before, of a searching for a fortune and a coming back to claim, etc., the next morning Tom went to New York with ten dollars, some underwear, and a queer-looking suit of clothes. He found himself on the third afternoon, landed in the office of the city editor of a newspaper. Tom never knew just how it happened, but he had met a pleasant man who wanted him to go with him to cash a lottery ticket, and, as Tom had read the papers, it ended in the stranger being knocked down. Then there had been a young fellow in the crowd who saw a good story in the thing and took Tom along to ask particulars. In getting them, he had found out a good deal of Tom's own story, which the young fellow daubed a hard-luck tale, one which he didn't mind hearing, he said, though he did have troubles of his own. He was a reporter with something of a pull, and in two days Tom was a snapper-up of occasional light assignments on a New York daily. They had the usual run of fun with him at first, but he caught on rapidly, and when he had learned the style of the paper, he wrote acceptable stuff and went on a salary. It was told of Tom that he fell down on only one assignment, and that was when he was sent to report an accident in Central Park. There he heard a song sparrow sing, and forgot all about the prominent citizen who was said to be badly hurt. Then he chased an unknown feathered friend all over the place, and by the time he had found out what the bird was, the prominent citizen had been a long time dead. 
After that, they kept him tied down to bricks and stone pavements. Tom had in him a bit of the improvidence of his father. At the end of a year, he had lots of experience and no dollars. He found himself ashamed to face Ruth when he took his fortnightly trips into Westchester County. So, one day, saying, I'll go where I can't see her, and I'll make a strike if it costs, well, anything but Ruth, he started for Chicago. Two city editors in succession turned him down when he asked for work. On his second day in Chicago, there was a northeast storm that tore down the 300 miles of open lake and sent the remains of more than one luckless lumber schooner over the breakwater into the lakefront basin. One great wave had passed along at sunset. It had approached a tidal wave in magnitude, and Tom heard people talking about it the next morning. That day was cloudless and as calm as the preceding one had been stormy. Before I see another city editor, mused Tom, I'll find out what these Chicago suburbs can turn out in the way of birds that we don't have down east. He bought a morning paper and took a cable car for South Park, examining his paper vainly for a suggestion for some special article that he might undertake as an opening wedge. At South Park, he stuffed the paper into his pocket and began looking about him for something new in the bird line. Here, however, his prospecting met with such poor returns that this reporter with an ornithological trend swung into a 55th Street car bound for Jackson Park. He was told by the conductor that if he wanted to see some real country, he must go to South Chicago and take an electric car into northern Indiana. Half an hour afterwards, he was bowling along at ten miles an hour through a pretty country which stretched far away at a dead level to the right, while at the left, beyond a single line of fields, was a dark green second growth of timber. It was so dense that it looked impenetrable, but at intervals Tom could catch a momentary glimpse of the blue lake beyond. A flash of color crossed the track, dead ahead, at the height of the trolley wire. It was traveling for the woods. It struck Tom's eye, and with an exclamation he jumped from the car and made off after the bit of brilliancy, clearing a bobbed wire fence with an ease born of farm life. "'It's a scarlet tanager,' he said to himself. "'The bird of all birds I wanted to visit at its home.' This meteor, unlike other meteors, did not disappear, but contented itself with resting its glowing body on a limb backed by a green wall. Tom checked his pace and approached cautiously. He arrived within twenty yards and stood still, noting every feather of contrasting black and scarlet. The tanager cocked his head and looked downward, letting Tom come five yards nearer. Then he led his observer, by a series of short flights and longer stops into the thicket, whistling encouragement as Tom shouldered his way through the bushes. Finally, an opening came into view. The tanager rested a moment on a branch at the wood's edge, and then left it for an unseen resting place beyond, just as his pursuer pushed aside the last of the tangled barrier and stumbled into the half-sandy, half-stony shore of Lake Michigan. The sun was at meridian, and the glare from the water half-blinded him. Tom rubbed his eyes and looked about for the bird, and then rubbed his eyes again. There, twenty yards to his right, a great lead-colored hulk rose from the water, its forepart fast between two massive boulders. At its top, with feathers just ruffled by the lake wind, was the tanager. An oak bough high overhead threw the bird into a shadow which dulled the brilliancy of its plumage, and its breast was like blood. It whistled cheerfully, however, and some look of returning sense came into Tom's face. His eyes sought the songster, 
and under it, on the dark pile, he read the word, Aurora. At that sight he started back, and stood for a moment, rigid as a statue, one hand shading his eyes, the other clutching at his coat pocket. Then his pose relaxed. His right hand slipped into his pocket and produced the paper that he had been reading on his trip to South Park. He turned to the first page. No, he was not dreaming. There, in heavy black letters, running across two columns, well near the top of the page, he read this advertisement. $2,500 reward. The directors of the Brahm and Horton line of steamers will pay the above amount to anyone who will locate the hull of the steel steamship Aurora, which went down with all on board somewhere between Racine and New Haven in the great blizzard of February 21, 1880 blank. In the morning, Tom had given the notice only a passing thought. Now it seemed to him the one topic of interest in the entire universe, as he stood staring first at the paper, then at the blackened hull, while his mind rapidly reviewed what he knew of the Aurora's history. He remembered the loss of the vessel. The papers had been full of it at the time. She had left port on a calm winter morning for her short run across the lake. The worst blizzard of the season had come up without warning, and the steamship had never been heard from nor had one of the bodies of the score of men on board ever been recovered. He remembered that the heroic search, in the face of winter storms and an arctic temperature, had been kept up for weeks by the tug captains of Chicago and Milwaukee with crews of volunteers. There had been sensational features about the case not attending many disasters where the loss of life had been much greater. A bottle containing a message in the handwriting of the captain and signed by him had been picked up. It said, The fires are out. The storm is heavy. We can see nothing, and are freezing. The men are taking to the hold. Goodbye. One bitter afternoon, a week after the sailing of the steamship, a telephone message had gone from South Chicago to the city newspaper offices. Its burden was, The hull of the Aurora is drifting past three miles out. A dozen tugs had started in pursuit, but night settled down and the chase disappeared in the gloom near the Indiana shore. The next day, from oldest to youngest, the lake captain said the same thing. It was not the aurora, but only a mass of floating ice and snow, black with old squaws and ring-billed gulls. The mass of ice and snow, gull and duck-covered, drifting toward the Indiana shore that bitter afternoon, had been the aurora after all, perhaps with a slowly perishing crew whose sole hope of life left with the disappearance of the light of the last returning tug. Some upheaval attending the wave which had swept the lake at sunset the day before had lifted the monster, and had given its head a new resting place between the boulders on the shore. Tom thrust the paper back into his pocket and walked slowly toward the vessel. His first thought touched on the discovery simply as a news story. The reporter was uppermost. Then into his mind fell the remembrance of the $2,500 reward, and following quickly came thoughts of Ruth and the fruit farm. Then this reporter, who had been led to a possible fortune by a bird, suddenly became energetic. He rounded the aurora's prow. The upper works were all gone, and there was a great gash in the vessel's side as though a steel projectile had ripped its way through. Tom reached the deck by letting himself down from the overhanging limb of an oak. Everything had been swept clean. The hatch had been battened down, but was now sprung and loosened. He hesitated to raise it, sickened at the thought of what might be hidden in the black hold below. Nerving himself with an effort, he threw off the iron-sheathed lid. The position of the vessel had set aft the water in the hold. He looked down, and then drew back with a cry. 
the noonday sun, letting fall a great square of light through the hatchway into the darkness below, had shown a circle of dead men staring into one another's eyes. Their faces were perfectly preserved, though the skin was drawn and yellow. Across the center of the circle, two of that gruesome crew had stretched their arms and had given a last hand-clasp, which had never been broken. Sick with the horror of the scene, Tom staggered forward. Only by supreme effort could he pull himself together. It was eighteen months, he thought, since the aurora went down. What had kept that dread circle intact? Why were the bodies clothed in flesh instead of being grinning skeletons? Tom's mind could give no answer to the questions. He went back once more to the hatchway, and again looked down. It was reality. The horrible circle was unbroken. Two of the full-fleshed faces were turned upward, the eyes just showing below the drooping leathery lids. Tom pulled the hatch back into place. His first impulse was to strike direct for the owner's office, guide the agent to the place and claim the reward. Then his newspaper instinct asserted itself. Could he not sell the story at exclusive rates and get the reward too? Twenty-five hundred dollars. Strawberry Lodge would cost two thousand dollars, but it would take eight hundred dollars, at least, to make it a fit residence for Ruth. Tom made for the place where the tanager had perched. He tore from their fastenings on the bow the brass letters of the name Aurora, ripping out with them some peculiar-looking clamps, now almost fallen away, which had held the name in place. Producing once more the fateful newspaper, he carefully wrapped in it the letters, and swinging over the side, dropped to the beach. Threading his way back through the thicket, and crossing the field, he marked with an upright pole the place where he had jumped the fence. The conductor on a city-bound car told him that the place was just twenty-eight miles from the courthouse. Once in town, Tom went straight to the office of the Aurora Line. Captain Watson, one of the owners, was in, and led the way into a private office. Tom went plump to the point. I know where the Aurora is. The hull is in good condition, and the vessel lies where she can be raised easily. The bodies of the crew are in the hold. She may be three hundred miles from here, or she may be only thirty but I will lead you to her on these conditions. You must bring the $2,500 reward with you in cash. The first 28 miles of the journey must be made in a carriage, and the start must be made at one half hour after midnight. You are to give me the money only when you are satisfied that things are as I say. And go with you, after midnight, 28 miles in a carriage, with $2,500 in cash in my pocket, said the owner. Take with you ten men armed with Winchesters, if you are afraid of a hold-up. All I want you to do is to come. And saying this, Tom placed in the proper order on the table the letters of the word Aurora, which he had taken from the vessel. By each letter he put the clamp which had held it to its place in the prow. The owner looked from the letters to Tom. I'll go with you, he said, but I shall not go alone. Good enough. I'll meet you here at twelve-thirty sharp tonight. If I have your word, you'll say nothing of the object of the trip in the meantime. Not a word to anyone, said Captain Watson. Tom left him and went straight to the office of the managing editor of the Daily Breeze. Under a pledge of secrecy, he told his story, withholding only the location of the wreck. He closed a bargain at twenty-five dollars a column for everything to be published, including pictures, on condition that his story proved a scoop. Tom secured the further condition that no one in the office outside of the men at work on the story, was to know of it, until it was made necessary by the handing in of the copy. Then the city editor turned over to him two artists and four reporters. At twelve o'clock that night, 
the breeze had two and one-half pages of matter ready for the first edition. Tom wrote the lead and gave the account of his discovery. Sharply at twelve-thirty o'clock, he was at the riverfront. At the foot of the stairway leading to the steamship office, a carriage was waiting. On the box with the driver was a man with the butt of a Winchester between his feet. The driver looked nervous. "'Get in,' said a voice from the hack. Tom jumped in and was pulled down on the back seat between two men, one of whom he recognized as Captain Watson. Opposite were two heavy-set fellows, and by the gleam of the electric light on the corner, Tom saw that they were armed. "'We'll start right,' said Captain Watson. "'Young man, here are twenty-five hundred dollars. "'The money is yours if you do as you said. "'But if this queer way of doing things means mischief for us, "'you'll get something besides money and get it damned hard.' Tom saw the point, the roll of bills, and a big revolver. "'Drive south on Wabash and Cottage Grove Avenues until I tell you to stop,' he said. He leaned forward as they went by the Breeze office, to hear the roar of the presses, and then settled back as comfortably as he could, considering the circumstance that each elbow rested on the butt of a revolver. Nothing was said in the rapid drive to 55th Street, save an occasional bit of a damned folly from Captain Watson, and a muttered promise to wring the cub's neck if he was lying. At 55th Street, Tom called a halt. "'Take the shortest cut,' he said, "'to Stony Island Avenue. Drive along that to South Chicago Avenue, and from there to South Chicago.' Then they went on silently again, until Tom asked suddenly, "'What was the Aurora's cargo, Captain?' "'Nails and kegs and a lot of chemicals. Arsenic, collodium, bichlorate of zinc.' alum and bichloride of mercury i think south chicago avenue was as black as a london chimney halfway down to the rolling mills the horse drew up suddenly and reared throwing the occupants of the back seat forward tom felt himself grabbed by captain watson and in an instant a pistol was pressed to his head then the voice of the driver was heard swearing frightfully because the railroad company had left an unlighted obstruction in the road i thought it was a hold-up said the captain and my boy the forefinger of my right hand was getting mighty nervous. It was broad daylight when they came in sight of the upright pole at the fence. Stop here, was Tom's order. That's a song, Sparrow, Melospizza Melodia, that you hear singing over there, said Tom to Captain Watson, as a bit of melody floated across the field. You're a corker, said the captain, with a grin. Through the wet grass of the thicket they made their way. Tom conscious that the slightest unusual movement on his part would bring out the captain's big gun. He broke through to the shore a yard ahead of the vessel's owner. There, he said, pointing. Captain Watson pushed aside the last branches. His eyes fell on the hull. My God! The Aurora! They boarded the craft. The captain looked into the hold. His gaze fell in that awful circle of silence. He reached out his hand for support. It's the captain and the crew! he said. The best that ever put out of a lake port. But, good God, boys, these men are recognizable. Those joining hands there are the captain and the first mate. They were brothers. The two looking up are the steward and a sailor. They went down there, poor devils, and froze to death. It was an awful day, the worst I ever knew. It's a year and a half now, there should be no flesh on these bones. This thing goes beyond me. The cargo, Captain, said Tom. Those packages of chemicals were smashed and went into solution. These men were embalmed, 
pickled, if you will. No undertaker could have done it better. The pitch of the sea rolled the nail kegs into the space the men had cleaned and pinned them down after death. The circle was kept unbroken. And so it proved. A minute afterwards, Tom climbed over the vessel's side with a package of bills closely buttoned inside his vest. An hour afterward, Captain Watson was buying a breeze and paying one cent for some information, which had just cost him $2,500. A year afterward, Tom was lying on the grass in front of his property, Strawberry Lodge, watching a bluebird carry straws into a box. Tom sighed. "'What's the matter, Tom?' asked Ruth, who sat near with her sewing. "'I was only thinking that if scarlet tanagers were plenty and nested in boxes, what a bird palace I'd put up!' End of Section 2 Recording by Todd